This morning we will be reading from the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord write this word on our hearts. I haven't met you, friends, or you just came in a little bit ago. I'm Matthew, one of the pastors here, and... I love to preach God's word. And while there were, you know, there's, there, if you preach Thanksgiving week, there are sacrifices that must be made. But I was thinking this morning, what, what a privilege it is to spend hours and hours meditating on the word of God. There's nothing I would rather do. Lord, would you bless this preaching of your word and help this preacher. Amen. Sometimes the, the best thing that you can do for your soul, I'll just assert this up front, the health of your soul is, is not to read a new book, but it's to reread an old book or a book you've read before. And, and I recently set aside the better part of a day uh, to reread Tim Keller's book, Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Anybody, how many of you have read that, just out of curiosity? A couple of you? It's really good. I don't think, I don't, I didn't tell projections. We don't have a graphic of that, but it is in the bookshop. Prayer by Tim Keller. And the strength of that book in many ways is, is the way Keller gathers insights on prayer from writers throughout the history of the church. And I pick that book up because I'm convinced that two of the most important things I do as a pastor are pray for you and preach the word of God to you. Those are really important, right? More important than any administration or program running. Pray for you. Preach the word of God to you. And I've sensed the Lord wants me to grow over the next year in my practice of prayer. So I picked up Keller's book. And as I've worked through that book slowly for the second time, I've realized once again that you can tell a lot about what someone believes or doesn't believe about God from the way they pray. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, you you have people who who pray all the time and are afraid to miss a beat lest they miss out on a divine blessing that, that they might otherwise receive. So if something goes wrong in their life, their first thought is this, how could this happen? Did I not pray enough? And their life verse is James 4, 2. You do not have because you do not ask. On the other hand, you have people who rarely pray or never pray because it feels irrelevant or pointless. If, if God is sovereign, if he's in charge of all things, why bother trying to change his mind? Good, bad, in between. Que sarah, sarah. Their life verse is Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. 
I think it's especially easy to drift into that lane on the heels of unanswered prayer. Because rather than than deal with the, the seeming contradiction between what the Bible says about the power of prayer and the long list of unanswered prayers you perceive in your life, you just take an escape and conclude prayer must just not be all it's cracked up to be. Because working through that is too hard. So you've got people that think everything depends on prayer. You've got people that think nothing depends on prayer. And and sometimes we're both, you know, like a ping pong match. And, And in the middle of that back and forth, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5 comes in like a referee and says, time out. Stop the game. The Apostle Paul is here to give us a master class on prayer. And in particular, friends, Paul shows us in these verses how, how the sovereign power of God, the Lord who does what he says he will do, is anything but a disincentive to pray. To the contrary, it's what? The very reason we pray. It's our only hope for praying. We we pray, Paul teaches us, listen, because the faithfulness of God ensures his word will bear fruit. That's why we pray. And the nature of Paul's request for prayer in these verses and the example of his practice of prayer in these verses illustrate as much. So I don't know what your practice of prayer has looked like in 2019. I don't know what you hope your practice of prayer will look like in 2020. I do know God hasn't left us on our own when it comes to prayer. It's too important. He cares about it too much. So so he equips us for our practice of prayer by answering some common questions about prayer in this passage. And it's not... Paul doesn't come out and ask those questions, but he's very clearly answering these questions in what he writes, what the Lord inspired through him. And they're very simple questions. What should we pray? Why should we pray? And how should we pray? We're going to go through each one of those this morning. What should we pray? Why should we pray? How should we pray? We're going to, let's consider each one of those. So first, what should we pray? Biblical prayer is supremely concerned for the Lord's mission. For the Lord's mission. The, the humility that Paul displays in the very first sentence here. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Contains the only explicit command in the entire passage is remarkable. What does he say? Finally, brothers... Pray for us. And I want you to think about the significance of those words. Okay? Who's asking for prayer? The folks who wrote this letter, right? Who's that? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Especially Paul because he's the primary author. And humanly speaking, those guys are the reason there's a church in Thessalonica. Okay, they were the ones who first showed the Thessalonians who Jesus is, what it means to follow him. They're, they're the spiritual fathers in the faith to the Thessalonians. They're mature, they're godly, 
They're wise, they're experienced, and and given all of that, it would make sense for what? For the Thessalonians to request prayer from Paul and Paul to give prayer to the Thessalonians, given their relative maturity. But Paul knows something, doesn't he, that we easily forget. As Ed Welch says, we are all needy and needed. And Paul knows that he needs prayer just as much as the Thessalonians do. So so he gladly embraces his apostolic role and the spiritual responsibility to care for the church that came with that. But listen, he doesn't put himself and the Thessalonians on different spiritual planes or levels when it comes to continual dependence on the Lord. He's not into strata. I'm less dependent, you're more dependent. I give prayer, you get prayer. No, verse one practically screams, listen guys, I need Jesus just as much as you do. So I ask friend, is that that your attitude? I, I doubt any of you would go so far as to say, especially to a pastor on a Sunday, right? God forbid, you're smarter than that. I don't need any prayer. (laughs) But when was the last time you took initiative to ask somebody to pray for you? When was the last time you asked someone younger in the faith to pray for you? Or, Or the spouse who never reads their Bible to pray for you? Or or has a subtle arrogance so taking control of your heart that that only pastors and other spiritual leaders in your life ever get a request for prayer from you? I I remember several years ago when when a young woman uh, engaged me in conversation after I preached on a Sunday. Uh, She wasn't a member of the church at the time. And the interaction, to be honest, was, at least I felt like, a little bit socially awkward. (laughs) And my mind quickly flooded with all the other people that I needed to see and all the other conversations I wanted to have that morning. And this conversation seemed like an ideal moment for a graciously quick exit. (laughs) And then she quietly asked, looked me right in the eyes, Pastor, how can I pray for you? And I was immediately convicted. (laughs) I mean, it's like, Lord, I just preached, right? So hypothetically, I know I need prayer. But really, right now, from, from her? Father, forgive me. Humble me. And so I stopped. And I shared a very real and vulnerable area of need. And then I waited while she prayed for me. And let me tell you, friends, the Lord met me in that moment. She poured her heart out to the Lord, socially awkward or not, oblivious to everything else around. God used her to care for my soul. 
And he taught me something as a pastor that morning that I don't want to forget, and that is, I need to be humble. And I need prayer just as much as anybody else. So do you. And so the sheer fact that Paul, of all people, ask for prayer, it orients us, right? What's it orient us to? Our mutual dependence on the Lord. But the content of his request for prayer is no less an expression of humility. Look back at verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Now, if you read that slowly, I hope you had this thought. That seems incoherent. (laughs) Why? Paul, you say, pray for us, but then your first request has nothing to do with you. You notice that? It's about the word of the Lord, which, which we know from 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15, look back there if you want to, is the truth of the gospel. Okay, the good news of all Jesus has done to accomplish salvation for mankind. But it's not incoherent. It's deliberate. It's honest. Why? Because the supreme concern in Paul's heart, the dominant need in his mind, the the desire occupying center stage when given an opportunity to present a request for prayer for himself is what? The advance of the gospel. The fulfillment of Jesus' mission to bring glory to his Father in heaven by drawing sinful men and women from every tribe and tongue to experiencing the joy of a restored relationship with God. That's Paul's deepest hunger. That's his greatest longing, his, his highest ambition. Translation, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your redemptive rule extend from the east to the west as, as real people in real places and real cities and real neighborhoods awaken to the beauty of God in Jesus Christ. He longs for spiritual conversions. He wants the same thing that he saw happen in the Thessalonians to happen to millions more people. And he doesn't want it to happen slowly. Don't you love that? I want it to happen quickly. I want the gospel to to speed ahead, to run as it were, pass from from mouth to mouth, from forgiven sinner to forgiven sinner, compelling the joy of wholehearted obedience to your commands, Jesus. Why why does Paul want that? Why does he want that? Because he knows where God's word is honored, God is honored. It's it's not an abstract request. It's not a, here's this, it's not a super spiritual desire. Okay? He he doesn't, sometimes we, we think like this. He doesn't ignore everything he really wants and give a Christian answer. He's not like a kid who, you know, parents say, well, Johnny, what would you like for Christmas? Um, I would like a greater measure of diligence in my chores. You know, it's like, no, you don't, Johnny, be honest. Paul's not faking something here. He's being real. He's being honest. He loves God so much. He's so jealous for God's glory that that what he wants more than anything else is the triumph 
of Jesus' mission in the world. He so identifies with Christ and is so satisfied in Christ that Jesus' mission is Paul's mission. Jesus' work is Paul's work. What what Jesus delights to accomplish, Paul delights to witness. The souls that Jesus died to save are the souls Paul longs to see come home to God. So I ask you, friend, when, when you request prayer from other people, what do you ask for? What do you request when, when, when you pray for yourself? What, what ambitions or desires just come pouring out of your heart? Is it God's mission or your mission? Is it God's glory or, or has some lesser glory, if you're honest, taken over your soul? It's parked on the throne of your heart, as it were. Something other than the glory of Christ right now. By the way, if that's the case, don't try to fool God that it's not. <laughs> because he knows your heart. He knows your heart. We need to be honest with him where we don't long for his mission and his glory more than anything else. We need to repent. We ask for his forgiveness and pray that we would love what he loves supremely. I don't want you to think it's wrong to pray for your physical or material needs, though. Okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. If somebody asks you, is it wrong to pray for financial provision or bodily health? You should always say, no. It's not wrong. Why? First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And, and there's no spiritual concerns only footnote to Psalm 46, verse 1, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But there's a reason, friends, hear this. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verse 9, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's the first request out of the gate. Why? Because it is what we should supremely long for and love. May, may the Lord purify and cleanse us from all manner of other petty selfish concerns that, that occupy more emotional bandwidth in our hearts than the supremacy of Christ renown and the glory of his kingdom. So what do we pray? We should pray first and foremost for what? The advance of the gospel and the demise of all who oppose it not as a prequel to what we really want God to do, but first because God's glory is our consuming passion. So what do we pray for? Biblical prayer is supremely concerned for the Lord's mission. Second, why do we pray? Why do we pray? Biblical prayer, point number two, is supremely convinced of the Lord's faithfulness. I want you to go back and look at the the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3 because the contrast here is both striking and intentional. So, look carefully. Why does Paul ask for deliverance from the schemes of wicked and evil men as he labors to share the gospel? What does he say? For not all have faith. 
I mean, to which as I read that this week, I thought, well, well, no, duh, Paul. I mean, do you, you, you think we didn't know that already? I mean, last time I checked, not everybody's a Christian. I'm kind of aware of that. Thanks for the reminder. Uh, what's next? That's not a throwaway. That's not. He's not trying to state the obvious. He's making a critical point. What's Paul doing? Well, he's doing what all of Scripture does. Namely, Scripture is b- brutally honest about the reality of evil and crystal clear on the explanation for evil. So think about this. All wickedness in our relationships with one another, including the wickedness of religious persecution that the Thessalonians were experiencing, is the overflow of what? It is rooted in what? A problem in our relationship with God. All wickedness and horizontal human one another relationships is the overflow, is the fruit of what? A problem in our vertical relationship with God. Remember the Thessalonians were languishing under persecution. It's what forced Paul in Acts 17 to to leave the city quickly. And when you're experiencing human enmity and human weakness, it's so easy to think this is nothing but a human problem. But Paul knows better than that. And he reminds the Thessalonians of as much. He's saying, guys, listen, the enmity that you're experiencing, the persecution you're experiencing, is rooted in a conflict that is much bigger than you. And is ultimately directed at someone far greater than you. It's, It's the result of the absence of faith in God. And the transformation of heart and life that only happen with repentance and faith in God. So guys, their issue, your persecutor's issue, isn't ultimately with you. It's ultimately with the Lord. The problem is they don't believe Jesus. They don't trust Jesus. And they hate his people accordingly. Not all have faith. Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. Or more literally, faithful is the Lord. If you read this in the original language, the last word of verse 2 is the first word of verse 3. Faithful is the Lord. Which is Paul's way of saying what to the Thessalonians? Guys, remember that Jesus is for you everything that your opponents, your persecutors, are so painfully not. What are they doing? They're working to undermine your faith. Destroy you on behalf of Satan, the evil one. So so what is Jesus seeking to do in your midst? Look at verse 3. Two things. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Jesus will enable you to persevere in following him. And he will protect you from the schemes of your spiritual enemy. And brothers and sisters, to hear that as a promise from Jesus Christ is incredibly good news. Incredibly good news. Why? Well, are you struggling to follow Jesus? Knocked about by, by doubt and fear, or, or maybe you, you come to the end of 2019 and you feel like, if you're being honest, you're mired in a pit of depression. Christian, if you are in Christ, know this, Jesus will be faithful to establish you. Get okay, power for endurance in the Christian race. It never has and it never will and it certainly is not right now coming from within you. That comes from Christ. Are are you beset on every side? 
As you come to the end of 2019 with, with strong temptations to sin, maybe some temptations that nobody else knows about, well, take heart in this. Jesus himself will be faithful to protect you. How's he going to do that? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So fear not. Surrender not. Look to Jesus and take heart. Because the one Jesus establishes cannot be struck down. And the one Jesus protects cannot be destroyed. Christian, faithful is the one who created you. Faithful is the one who saved you. Faithful is the one who's going to bring you home. And given Paul just finished telling the Thessalonians how to pray for him in verses 1 and 2, you might expect him to say this in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish us and guard us against the evil one right? Because the whole thing he's been doing so far is how to pray for us. But he doesn't say that. He says he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So why does Paul switch subjects? Details matter. Why does he do that? Because he knows they have a shared need. He recognizes as he he shares his prayer request in verses 1 and 2 that the Thessalonians are undoubtedly thinking, oh man, That's exactly what we need to, right? Deliverance from wicked and evil men so the word of God continues to bear fruit in our lives even as we pray for it to speed ahead and be honored through Paul's ministry. He's asking for that? Oh my, we need that too. So here again, we see what? Biblical prayer isn't the haves praying for the have-nots. It's the needy praying for the needy. It's intercession from a position of of mutual need for Jesus and mutual dependence and trust in Jesus. And Paul assures the Thessalonians that that the same Savior who will be faithful to establish and guard him, hence they can pray for him with confidence, is what? The same Savior who will be faithful to establish and guard them. But notice he's not just giving them a reason for comfort in verse 3. He's giving them a reason to pray, especially in the end of verse 3. How do we know that? Because the very thing, listen to this, Paul tells the Thessalonians to pray. In verses 1 and 2, what's that? That we may be delivered from wicked and evil men is the exact same thing Paul says the Lord will do in verse 3. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And in that sense, the the promises of God in verse 3 provide the basis or the reason for the prayer request back in verses 1 and 2. So Paul isn't just telling the Thessalonians what to pray, right? He's telling them why they should pray it. Guys, ask Jesus to deliver his people from wicked and evil men because what? Jesus has promised to establish his people and guard his people from the evil one whose face presses through the actions of wicked and evil men. That's why they could pray. And I think here's where Paul really helps us, friends. 
with the dilemma that I posed at the very beginning. Okay, so does everything depend on prayer or does nothing depend on prayer? Do, do we pray fervently or do we trust the promises of God? Well, what's the biblical answer? Somebody said yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. In what sense? We pray fervently because we trust the promises of God, right? It's not pick. I'm for fervent prayer and human responsibility. I'm for trusting God and divine sovereignty. No, what is it? Because we trust the promises of God, we pray fervently. Don't, don't excuse, in other words, don't excuse your spiritual laziness. I'm just going to get in your face for a little bit here, okay? By saying, soul, because God is faithful, I don't need to pray. Say to your soul, because God is faithful, I have immeasurably great reason to pray. Because I know that the substance of my request, Lord, let your kingdom come, will most surely come to pass. Because my king, in his infinite wisdom, has chose to bring about his kingdom through my prayers. Matthew 9, verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The fact that Paul says God will do in verse 3, the very thing he tells the Thessalonians to pray for in verses 1 and 2, teaches us, friends, that we need to diligently pray the promises of God back to him. There's power in that. Not power as in divine manipulation, you know? Like, you said that whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully, and I put my tithes in last week, so pay up. No, that's manipulation. It's, it's not an exercise in divine recollection. As if the Lord forgot what he had said he would do. Hey, by the way, you made a promise, and it's clear you forgot, so could you remember? No. No, praying the promises of God is powerful. Why? Because it helps us pray in accordance with God's will. That's why. John 5 verse 14. And this is the confidence, Jesus says, we have toward him. Notice that if we ask anything according to his will, where do we discover that? The promises of God. He hears us. Don't, don't you want God to hear you when you pray? Well, then what do we do? We pray through faith in Jesus Christ because only Jesus makes anything we do or ask or request acceptable to God. But then we better make sure that we're praying in accordance with God's will because that's the prayer he hears. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Why? Because we know out of the gate we've been praying in accordance with God's will. Paul wants the Thessalonians and us to recognize that when we pray for the advance of Christ's kingdom, you know what you're doing, friend? You're praying for a cause that is guaranteed to succeed. Isn't there joy in that? Faith to pray in that. So, so why should we pray, for example, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored? Why pray for that? That just sound good in Paul's mind? Hey, that's cool. I'm kind of in running, so um, may your word speed ahead and be honored. That would be kind of 
nice? No, we pray for that because of Psalm 147, verse 15. He, Yahweh, sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. So we pray. It doesn't mean we should only pray verbatim. The need for a qualification here, right? For things that God has explicitly promised to do. Okay, listen carefully. He's a good father. And we do well to ask him to meet the infinite variety of our needs as the overflow of the love that he proved once and for all when he died for us. But praying the promises of God does mean and does teach us that far from undermining our prayers or rendering them unnecessary, it's the faithfulness of God that sustains our prayers and fills our prayers with joy, even in suffering, as we wait for Jesus to do what only he can do and what he has said he will do. So as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, speaking of Jesus, and all the spiritual blessings he's won for us through the gospel, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen. What's, what's that amen? It's not just how people and prayers, because, you know, it's traditional. What is that amen? It is a let it be, Lord. You made a promise. You promised What? What did you promise, Jesus? That you will establish us and you will guard us. Amen, Lord. Do what you've said you will do. Biblical prayer is supremely convinced of the Lord's faithfulness. That's why we pray. What's our last question? How do we pray? How do we pray? Paul's reminded us what to pray, why to pray. So how do we pray? Biblical prayer, point number three is supremely confident in the Lord's work. So we're praying for the Lord's mission. We're praying because of the Lord's faithfulness. Put that together. How do we pray? We pray with confidence in the Lord's work. Look at verse four. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. In other words, Paul is supremely confident that the Thessalonians are doing what? That they are presently persevering on the path of obedience to King Jesus and they will continue to persevere on the path of obedience to King Jesus. But remember something about Thessalonians they tended to get basic doctrines of the faith really mixed up. (laughs) Like, they thought Jesus had already come back and they missed the boat. They had issues. (laughs) And so the big question when Paul says something like that, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command, that you guys are obeying right now, you're going to keep obeying in the future. Why could Paul say that? I mean, best case scenario, dude, especially more so with the Corinthians, that seems like a wishful hope. Well, well, the answer here is found in a very important little phrase, friend, in the middle of verse four, we have confidence in the Lord. Do you notice that? Confidence in the Lord. Notice Paul doesn't say he has confidence 
in the Thessalonians. His confidence concerns the Thessalonians. It relates to the Thessalonians, but he is not at all confident in the Thessalonians. His confidence is in the Lord. Why? Because he knows it is the Lord, not the Thessalonians, who will keep them on the path of obedience to God's commands and through his faithfulness, transform them on that path more and more into the image of Christ their Savior. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord. Comes from the Lord. Not Let's say that together. This comes from the Lord. You can say me. Not me. Not me. Comes from the Lord. And this verse, friends, verse 4, chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians, is why I asked Karin to share on this Sunday. Because her story and in particular, the way God taught her to trust God with the work he was doing in her husband is exactly what Paul is getting at here. So think about this. How will a spouse who is supremely convinced of the Lord's faithfulness relate to, let's, let's be honest, we find ourselves in these positions, a less mature husband or wife. How are you going to do that? Well, you'll pray for them with a supreme confidence in the Lord's preserving and sanctifying work in their life. And that that kind of Godward confidence in, in any relationship that you have with any brother or sister in Christ will tangibly impact the message they pick up from you and absorb from you in nearly any conversation. So let's just get really practical here as we prepare to conclude. If you don't have a supreme confidence in the Lord's work in your spouse's life, for example, and you say, hey, why don't we pray together before we go to bed? Or why didn't you sign up for the men's retreat? What is your husband going to hear no matter how nice you say that? All he's going to hear is, when are you going to stop being a spiritual failure? If you don't have supreme confidence in the Lord's work in your friend's life, and you say to them, hey, I reread a Christian book recently, and I think it would be really helpful for you. What are they going to hear? why can't you stop making the same dumb mistakes over and over in your life? Okay, in other words, I exaggerate, but but my point is you don't have to say, I don't trust God's work in you for them to pick up on that. They'll sense it. They'll know it. Why? Because Godward confidence in its presence or absence is remarkably contagious. 
God makes faith that way. It's what it is. It's faith. It's contagious. So follow Paul's example, my friends. Go, go out of your way to say to your spouse, to say to your friends, to say to your kids, listen, I just want you to know I trust God's work in you. And if you haven't done that, said that, in months, years, maybe, maybe never, then start with a confession. I mean, even if it's your child, you get, get down on a knee and just say, will you forgive me for not trusting God's work in you and trying to be your savior instead of praying and serving and loving you with confidence in the only savior? In the moment, doubting whether a fellow Christian will persevere in obedience can feel realistic after observing years of disappointing fruit. But in reality, it's a daring denial of the covenant faithfulness of God. If you're a Christian friend, it's the faithfulness of God that will keep you faithful to God. Don't try to work that confidence up in yourself. Don't don't try to work up confidence in someone else. Verse 4, have confidence in the Lord. And how does God do that? Maybe you're thinking, I would like five cubic yards of that dumped into my soul right now. Please help Jesus. How does he do that? Well, he employs two means in particular. Look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts. Kingsway, may the Lord direct your heart to the love of God, the steadfastness of Christ. Man, I sure got a lot of work to do. I really hope I can go out of here trusting the faithfulness of God's work in people. And Well, maybe you do. But I hope you go out of here more than anything else, friend. Knowing this, Lord, I need you to help me to think hard about your love and the perseverance of Jesus Christ. Why? Because those two things are like like an engine that when we meditate on them and fix on them, our gaze on them and think about them and study them and thank God for them, they work in our hearts to produce that kind of Godward confidence. So what do I mean by those two things? The love of God, what's that? Well, he shows it for us in this, right? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't love you, friend, because you were lovely. He loved you to make you lovely. Remember that. Nothing you do, Christian, can, can ever make God love you more or less. Nothing. So don't obey him to try to earn his love. Obey him because he loves you. And he's lavished his love on you in Jesus. And second, 
don't lose sight of the steadfastness, the, the perseverance of Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Fix your gaze on him, friend, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What does that mean? What well, means, friend, in every suffering you endure, in every temptation you face, know this, Jesus has gone that way before you. You're not the first one to walk this way. The man of sorrows acquainted with grief has walked this way before. And he knows your trouble. He knows your frame. And the same spirit that empowered Jesus to obey as the ascended Christ, he has now turned back around and poured out on his people so that you have power from Christ in yourself to persevere in the faith. And because Jesus' story ends in glory, you can know in Christ, yours will too. Biblical prayer is what? Supremely confident in the Lord's work. Supremely concerned for the Lord's mission. Supremely convinced of the Lord's faithfulness. Supremely confident in the Lord's work. These verses, Kingsway, are a call to pray. A call to pray. So I charge you, Kingsway, to pray and keep on praying. Because the faithfulness of God guarantees that his word will not fail to bear fruit. Would you stand with me? I want us to ask for God's help to do that right now by praying the way Jesus himself taught us to pray. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is not a magical incantation. It's a pattern for prayer. Hope to preach more on this next year. But I want us to pray this together in unison. And then we will sing to the Lord to express our faith in God and our desire that he would work more of that in us. Okay? So let's pray together. And I'm, I'm going to leave off the traditional ending because it's not found in Matthew 6. Okay? Lest you be confused. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord Jesus, do that, we pray. Make us a people who pray with an abiding confidence in the faithfulness of God. Let's sing.